things are gonna change. I can feel it. Good morning, and welcome to episode 289 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined by Sam Miller. It's, Howdy. Hello. It's Wednesday, so it's the listener email show. Uh, do you want to start with emails? You you picked out some emails. I have a couple emails. Um, yeah, let me let me lead with one, and then we can go in whatever direction we want. But, uh, but, but I want to lead with one just because it's more of an update. Um, okay. Zach emailed us uh, about a week ago or three days ago, uh, and he said that he just discovered us a few months ago, uh, which explains his question, um, why he's asking this question. Uh, long-time listeners will, will think it sounds familiar. Uh, he uh, emails, um, someone asked you about extreme shifts, and that got me thinking about what a team could do. Are there any rules about what protective gear defenders can use? How close can a fielder stand to the batter's box? Are there any rules against purposefully distracting the batter? This is, of course, uh, almost identical to the question that led to us discussing, over the course of multiple episodes, the defender wall, um, which was probably one of our, uh, I don't know, most distinguished moments, uh, distinguished being kind of a value-neutral term in this sense. (laughs) Um, and so, uh, of course, Zach, uh, I, I replied that Zach could uh, listen to our conversation in episodes. Well, I don't know what episodes they were. Uh, but uh, he reminded me that I actually have had an update uh, to this that I've been planning to do, and I've, I've forgotten to do it. Now, as you recall, our compromise was that the wall would probably be uh, quickly shut down because it would be a threat to the umpire. Um, but we also discussed the possibility of a uh, defender, say the shortstop standing directly behind the uh you know the pitcher's release point and like kind of just doing jumping jacks or throwing his glove or you know doing all sorts of things to kind of get in the way of the batter's uh you know vision and while i was researching the box piece uh, i found a rule that actually prohibits this Uh, the rule is no fielder shall take a position in the batter's line of vision and with deliberate unsportsmanlike intent act in a manner to distract the batter the offender shall be removed from the game and shall leave the playing field. And if a balk is made, it shall be nullified. So uh, I, I, that definitely uh, prevents the standing behind the pitcher idea. And I would say def- probably uh, explicitly outlaws the, the wall. So the wall is now a, a, dream, a dream dead. It's said. I'd love to see that called someday. Yeah. Well, who? I mean, yeah, who? Who wouldn't? <laughs> um, this is a, this is one of those classic rules where you just wonder if it's ever been called. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we wish we could look that up, but we can't. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, uh, well, I can go, or you can go. It's up to well, you. a bunch of people have actually asked me how my pickles turned out, uh, and I I promised to offer a brief review, so I guess I'll I'll do that now. Uh, Very brief. Yeah, they were they were above replacement pickles. They were better than the pickles I would get just walking into a grocery store and, and selecting a jar at random. Uh, but I want to improve my process. Uh, I already have a second generation of pickles in production right now. Um, I like my pickles barely barely legal, really, like almost indistinguishable from cucumbers. Uh, and I left these in too long. The recommended three days was too long, too much salt, uh, so I'm going to learn from that. And if you if you go to our Facebook group, and this is great incentive to join our Facebook group, 
at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild, you can see pictures of the pickles in progress and also the completed product. And there are now other listeners who are documenting their own pickle making process in our Facebook group. So it's now become, it's become a thing. I've inspired others. All right. <laughs> okay. I'm, dro- I'm dropping out of the pickle conversation. You, you, if you'd like, you can keep having a dialogue with the readers. You can even do it while we're recording, but I'm, I'm out. Okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. Can I read the first real question? Uh-huh. All right. Miles uh, says, consider the following string of abysmal end season records. And then he lists what looks to be about 13 losing records. Uh, well, I guess 12, 11 losing records. And then uh, one, two that are very slight winning records, but overall 13 very poor seasons. These are the records of every major league team that Adam Dunn has played for, including both the Reds and Diamondbacks in 2008. From the beginning of his career until now, with the White Sox presently at 58 and 88, Dunn is in the middle of his umpteenth September of meaningless baseball. How did that happen? Is Dunn the recipient of colossally bad random luck, or has something about his distinctive skill set helped bring upon this horrid fate? Uh, maybe his slug-only performance only appeals to teams that were going to be bad in the first place. I'm curious where Dunn fits in among active players in terms of individual winning percentage, if such a thing can be calculated. Have any current major leaguers suffered losses more often than Dunn? Um, And I wonder what journeyman would surprise us for being close to the top. Um, His money is on Mike Napoli, incidentally, for that. Um, So I had our sets guys actually uh, run a sort of proxy for this. In, we don't have team records for all the days that they're on the roster, but we do have uh, records for all the days that they play. So basically players' individual winning percentages in their career. Mm-hmm. And so it's uh, I filtered for minimum of 800 career games, active players only. And so that gives us you know, 100 or so players. And I want you to guess <laughs> who are the losingest players. Uh, wow. Um, it's hard, huh? It's, it's, it's actually sure. really hard. Because, you know, the thing is, when we talk about how hard it is to predict more than two or three years in advance, unless you actually really force yourself, it's actually hard to remember players' careers beyond two or three years in the past. Mm-hmm. You Like, there are players who I looked at on this list and thought, him? Mm-hmm. And then I thought, oh, yeah, well, he was on this team and this team and this team. And I only think of him as being on the team he's currently on and maybe the, the one before that mm-hmm. or maybe like one in the past. But guys are changing teams constantly and you just sort of blank on them. So anyway, yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> yes. uh, okay, I will guess Gary DeSarcina. No, active, active. Oh, active. Gary oh. DeSarcina is, is an active He's active by like senior citizen standards, mm. but he is not an active baseball player. Uh, okay. So you all right? So this is doesn't cover historical players at all. This is just people who are. Well, Adam Dunn is historical, but no, it's it's active. They're active. Everybody's active. This is an unambiguous word. Hmm. Okay. I mean, I guess the odds are that it would be a bad player, right? You think so? Probably. The the difference between a bad player and a good player is like three wins a year in actual performance. So the odds are it's someone on bad teams. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, but the odds are slightly higher that the team would be bad if the bad player is... 800. Also, 800 players. I mean, we're talking about... Or, sorry, 800 games minimum. So, you know, to play 800 games... Yeah. You don't, you don't have to be 
Yeah, you don't have to be great, but I mean, like, I'll, I'll give you, a, there are a couple of bad examples, like, you you were never going to guess, but Ronnie Cedeno is number three mm. on the losing his players, and he, mm. you know, he's not a particularly good player, but uh, there's also some very good players, I would say, even on the, the top ten. Huh, uh, well, then there's no way I can guess this, really, I don't know, I'll say Jamie Carroll. Jamie Carroll is on the list, and he is actually, uh, he's like probably 20th from the bottom. Jamie Carroll has a 462 winning percentage in games he plays. All right. So that's, you know, you you got the bottom 20th percentile. (laughs) So once I I guess someone who was actually eligible, uh, I I had a pretty decent guess. Not not a bad, not a terrible guess. Keep going. (laughs) I want you to guess this. This is too good not to guess. Uh... Gosh. People put serious work into this. All right. Uh, Juan Pierre. Juan Pierre is... That's not a good guess, I don't think. Uh, he's he's actually quite... He, he uh, Juan Pierre has a, a 490 winning percentage, yeah. so close to the median. Yeah. Uh, okay. <clears throat> How about John McDonald? John McDonald, are you sure John McDonald has 800 games played? Yes. He does, and he has a 489 winning percentage. He's two spots ahead of Juan Pierre. Only Carlos Beltran is is in between them. (laughs) So John McDonald, terrible guess. Uh, All right. Hmm. Well, I don't know where to go from here. Um, Why don't you start going for some Royals? (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe some Pirates. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Um, no, number one is in your wheelhouse. Number one is a guy that you talk about a lot. <laughs> I mean, there there are probably not eight guys you talk about more than number one. Really? I'm, I'm I mean it, and not for good reasons, for <laughs> negative reasons. I'm trying to think of who I talk about a lot. They're all really oh. bad players who haven't even played 800 games, probably. Um, <clears throat> Frank Cor. Uh, Francoeur is not going to be that high. Uh, Francoeur has a, well, he has a 470 winning percentage, so he's probably 20, he's four behind Jamie Carroll, so he's about 25th or so. Mm. One, one spot ahead of Todd Helton, one spot below, uh, Mark Kotze, two, two players we huh. spoke about on the same episode. Mark Kotze, winning player though. Uh, winner, he is a winner. Yeah. He is a, he is a winner, he just hasn't won. Yeah. Um, gosh. Is the player I talk about a lot a pirate or a royal? Uh, was a pirate. Was a pirate. <laughs> here goes the here goes here goes Ben Ben Lindbergh's rabid googling. <laughs> what did you just Google pirate? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I ended up with like Blackbeard, so that didn't work. <laughs> um, uh, oh, oh, okay, Ryan Dome. You got it. Ryan Domit. Okay. Yeah, Ryan Domit is the losingest player, active player in baseball, with a 378 winning percentage <laughs> in his career. He has 327 wins and 539 losses. Wow. In his career, spectacular. I mean, what is that? That's, that's a that's a 0.377 times 162, and I forgot the equal sign. Hang on. Uh, that's going to be a 61-win season on average. He has averaged a 101-loss season in the games he has played. Wow. That is how bad he is. That's so I'll great. give you the top. I'll give you the top ten. I'll add that to my uh, repertoire of Ryan Domit facts. 
Yeah. So number one is is Domit. I'm going to skip number two because he's a surprise to me. Number three is Sedeno. Number four, John Buck. Number five, Ty Wigginton. Number six, Greg Dobbs. Number seven, Brian Roberts. Number eight, Austin Kearns. Number nine, Josh Willingham. Number 10, Jeff Keppinger. And then uh, 11 is Billy Butler. Mm-hmm. So that's probably how far you have to get a star unless you – Brian Roberts was a star for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, but number two is uh, – and quite a bit worse than number three, although better than Domit, obviously, is David DeJesus. So that kind of surprised mm-hmm. me. Uh, so, I mean, DeJesus has been on a lot of teams. And so for that reason, I, I never think of him as being stuck on a loser. Mm-hmm. Uh, but DeJesus has been a loser. Uh, so Napoli is actually the uh, eighth best winning percentage mm-hmm. among active players. Number one is Jeter by quite, quite a margin. How many of the top ten are Yankees? Number one is, number two is, number three is, number four is, number six, uh, no, sorry, number seven briefly um, and that's actually it. Um, Russell Martin's like 12, Granderson's like 14, Melky's like 15. Do you want to take a swing at a, at a high one and see how you do? A high one that I haven't named, a, a non-Yankee? Uh, all right. Um, how about, I don't know, Brian McCann? Uh, Brian McCann's like 30th or so. Uh, Jeter, Cano, Swisher, Euclid, um, the best non-Yankee is Ortiz. Ryan, Ryan Howard. Where's Ortiz? Ortiz is like 12th. Hmm. Ryan so, Howard. Ryan Howard, winning his player. And then, uh, number, the next, the next best is Yadier Molina. Uh-huh. And then the next best is now. We should put this in a, in a Google Doc or something somewhere for people yeah, to look at. Sure. I would say the surprise on here, the, 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 the surprise would be probably, if not Melky, uh, Placido Polanco is very high. Hmm. Okay. And you don't think of, you don't think of Polanco and like, if, if I told you Placido Polanco and Greg Dobbs, <laughs> you wouldn't intuitively know which was higher. At, like in this day and age, you, it wouldn't sort of naturally come to you, but Polanco's top 20 and Dobbs is bottom 20. Hmm. Okay, so yeah, put, right. put this online somewhere and I'll, I'll link it in the Facebook group or in the blog post comments or something. Okay. Okay. Do you want to read yours? Uh, sure. Okay, I have a couple. Uh, so the first one is about home run robberies. It comes from Kevin in Boston. Uh, he says, I was reading Ben's post on Carlos Gomez's home run robberies this season, and I noticed that all five plays came at Miller Park. This could be just a coincidence, but it seems reasonable that outfielders could make more of those plays at home where they might have a better sense of where the wall is and how the outfield plays. Uh, do you think fielders have an easier time robbing home runs at home between home run saves and other boundary plays? How many runs do you think the home team gains over the course of a season just by knowing the geometry of its park? Uh, so I asked Baseball Info Solutions um, about this. Do you care to hazard a guess about the percentage of home run robberies at home versus away? Um, well, a home team is more likely to hit a near home run. Uh, so mm-hmm. theoretically, they would there would be more opportunities to rob home runs mm-hmm. uh, if you were the visiting team. That is true. Uh, but on the other hand, the visiting team bats more often because they play the top of the ninth every time. Mm-hmm. So then theoretically, you might actually have more opportunities if you were the visiting team. So I'm going to call that a push Mm-hmm. And I will say that for defensive purposes alone, uh, I'll give the home team a 
Yeah, it seems seems like a, a very reasonable hypothesis. It does. I'll, I'll yeah. say I'll say sixty two percent. Apparently, uh, it's almost even. It's yeah. just over fifty percent uh, of home mm. run robberies since two thousand four, which is how long they've been tracking it. Have been made by a fielder for the home team, so there is no clear advantage. They told me. Hmm, bummer. Yeah, I was kind of hoping for fifty-four percent because yeah. that's like the standard <laughs> right. home field advantage. That's and right, I I assume it's even lower than that. I don't have an exact percentage, but but good question. I like the the theory from Kevin. I was I was persuaded there before I got the answer that that it would be higher than that because uh, it kind of seems like like it should be, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other question that I can answer comes from Matt. Uh, he says, how great would it be if five teams were to tie for the last wildcard spot in the American League? I don't know if this is even possible given the remaining schedules, but a mini playoff between teams like Texas, Cleveland, Baltimore, New York, and Kansas City would make for fantastic drama. A team might have to play three single elimination games just to win the right to play in the single elimination wildcard. Do league rules even address this possibility? And how might they handle a five-team playoff? Uh, so as it happens, I wrote an article about this last October as I was thinking along the, the same lines that Matt was. And on MLB's website, you can find the, the tiebreaker rules for three and four team playoff scenarios. And they're incredibly complicated uh, and they they make your head hurt just to read them. And so naturally, I wondered about the five team scenario, which is not on the website So I spoke to Katie Feeney, who is MLB's Senior Vice President of Scheduling and Club Relations, and I asked whether there was any contingency for a five-way tie, and she said that there is not. Uh, She said, to be perfectly honest, considerations for tiebreakers do not go that far. It's not there anywhere. It's probably something that would have to be determined. Uh, So she... I asked her to, to speculate about what it w- would look like, and she she kind of said it would look like like the four-team scenario, but just more complicated, and you'd have to work out some things that have never really been worked out. And she said it would probably take a minimum of three days to sort it all out. Um, you, you mean the, to play them all? Yeah, not to like play all for the, her to, yeah, Not for her to sit in the room and do the math. Right, yes, to, to actually determine... The winner of the tie breaks. That so. seems that seems light. That three days seems light. Uh, yeah, maybe. Although I guess you're gonna, you probably just flip a coin yeah. to figure out someone. Someone's gonna get a buy, right? Yes, and you're yeah. not gonna do some like complicated round robin so everybody plays an even number of games. Right. She said once you design the designations, you'd have to have A, B, C, D, and E teams. That's hard to say because I don't know if they decide to do it like the three team and have B play A at A and have C play the winner. If you were doing that, you'd have A, B, and C, and D. You have A hosting B and C hosting D on the same day, and then the winners play each other. Uh, And whether or not, if you have to go to an E, if E gets to wait until both of those games are over and then play the winner. So that's what you're talking about. Uh, She doesn't have an answer for that. She said people would have to talk about that to see if that was fair. Uh, yeah, that seems unfair because then yes. four team four teams would have to win three games and one team would only have to win one. I, I could see giving one team a one game advantage, you know, if, if you had to, you know, one team plays two, one plays one, mm-hmm. but to have all four have to play three mm-hmm. and one only have to play one seems impossibly unfair. Yeah, 
so I don't know what the odds are, but it, it's probably more likely that, that baseball will cease to exist before this happens than that, than that we will actually have to, to figure out the answer to this. It doesn't intuitively feel that unlikely, but then on the other hand, uh, it never happens. Like, it never even never comes close. Never seems close to happen, like, no. Have we, we've never had a three, have we? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, a hundred plus years, and we've never had. I mean, it it seems like it should be happening. The fact that it hasn't is all is really more evidence that you know than you need mm-hmm. that it's just not gonna. Mm-hmm. Um. All right. Good stuff. Yeah. And then didn't didn't you ask? Didn't you try to find out what would happen if there was a thirty team? <laughs> that was my initial my initial question when I called her, and I was worried that she was just going to hang up on her hang up on me. Um, I think, I think she basically said that there was, I mean, there was no contingency for a five, five way tie. So I didn't really even have to, to go into 30 way tie because <laughs> I mean, clearly there's no, no plan for that either. A 30 way tie though. Well, like a 28 way tie would actually be pretty, or I guess a 28 might be tricky, but like a 16 way tie would be like remarkably simple. You get the number does not dictate the the difficulty of it it's sort of like uh, sorry I, I should say that the the highness of the number doesn't dictate the simple the the difficulty it's really the the primeness of the number uh-huh right you know you, yeah. you want to have you want to have a a number that has lots of you know ways to divide it mm-hmm. and then if, if you have a prime number you prefer smaller mm-hmm. I guess mm-hmm. is the way to do it mm-hmm. uh, all right good so uh, back to me yeah all right, so this is a this is a quick one because this is a uh, question that has been asked by many people, but it's never been asked by uh, of me, and so and I don't know if it's ever been asked of you, so I want to answer it once for the record. Uh, from Jeff, given the chance to go back in time and see one game, which would you choose and why? Do you have one? Uh, nope. Mm-hmm. So here's my thinking. I have th- I have three different ways of answering this. Uh, my first answer and the one that I think I would stick with is September 13th of 1986 when the Braves played the Giants. Uh, nothing happened that day except that I went to my first game and I would love to go for nostalgia purposes and also to just, uh, it's, I find it sort of fun to go places that you went as a child and see them as an adult and, you know, it's such a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember, I remember three things about that game. And looking at it now, I, I see that two of them are wrong. One, I remember it being 5-1. It was actually 4-1. to one. I remember Dale Murphy hitting a home run and me cheering, not realizing that he was the visiting player. And he did hit a home run, and I presume I did cheer. And I remember uh, Juan Uribe, Jose Uribe getting in a pickle between third and home. He was in no pickles whatsoever. Mm. Uh what I don't remember, and I see now, is that Will Clark let off that game. Uh, but I think that'd be a, a, as good a game as any. I'm. Uh, I would like to see. I, I. 1980s baseball was such a huge part of my growth as a human, and yet I've seen so many games since then. I, I don't even really remember what it was like. And I would. I would love to see a 1980s game to see the speed. Basically, to see how different the speed was compared to what it is now, and then just to kind of revisit and you know, go and look at myself. So. <laughs> this is a pretty egotistical choice. Oh, well, uh, I'm not, I'm not saying what game everybody should go to. <laughs> uh, 
I think I'd, I think I'd like to go to the the Spawn Marischal game. Is it a sixteen innings? Yeah. one nothing. Not yeah, that. assuming that I could forget the outcome, I, I would enjoy it more. I, I'm sure if I didn't know how it was going to end. So if I could somehow know that it was going to be significant, but not know how it would all turn out, that would probably be pretty high on the list. Yeah, I thought about that one. I thought, wasn't there like a 23-inning, one nothing game with the Mets in some sometime in the 80s, I think? I thought about that, and I thought about the 33-inning or whatever minor league game there was. Uh, my number two is the, the Jackie Robinson's first game, just for historical value. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be amazing, um, and I don't see how you can find fault with that choice. Mm-hmm. And But my number three one would be the final game of the 1913 World Series, mm. and that one because I don't know who won. And if I'm picking a game, um, I would want it to be significant, but I would want to also not know the ending. I'd want to actually enjoy the suspense. So I would love to see early century baseball again, just to see how different it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have a hard time accepting that Babe Ruth actually happened that I I feel like he's a hoax. Uh, and I feel like if I saw what the game was actually like, it might explain some things about, about that. So that would probably be my my third my third choice. Okay. So are you sticking with Spawn Marshall? Yeah, I think so. That's off the top of my head. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, let's see. Uh, Ed says uh, Madison Bumgarner failed to get the win on September eighth after pitching six scoreless. Uh, the Giants eventually won. MLB or sorry, Bay Area News Group uh, quotes Bumgarner saying. Quote, it doesn't matter if I get the win or not. I don't care. It's out of our control. All the starters are trying to do is compete and give us a chance to win, eat up some innings. So, Ed asks, is Bumgarner a stat head or just dealing with disappointment? I think the answer is neither. I think that the win is pretty much um, uh, disregarded by almost everybody in the industry right now. I think that, for the most part, writers uh, are and newspaper editors and people who put out box scores care about the win. But my sense is that Oh, virtually nobody in baseball cares about the win right now. And Brian Sabian was asked about the win on um, KNBR not that long ago. He was asked, you know, when the last time they looked at a pitcher's record in trying to make any sort of decision. And he said, be honest with you, it's been a long time. It's been a number of years. And Sabian is nobody's idea of cutting edge uh, stat head, mm-hmm. uh, but you know it's just it's it's not That's it's not a going concern. So I think Bumgarner, guy, though, I feel like it's more more common among players. I, I mm, yeah, I don't I don't get that sense to be honest. I, I well, I, I get I mean it must because you still see managers leaving pitchers out to finish the fifth inning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I guess I guess in as much as they still get paid for it mm-hmm. by like arbitration. Uh, you know that sort of stuff or as much as it still shows up on their card and they they know that that's part of the historical record maybe they want them but um, I mean it you can find a pitcher almost every day saying that wins aren't that important you don't hear them talking about their war uh, very often those guys stand out but I mean almost almost it seems like almost every pitcher will say that wins aren't that significant yeah. to them right now. I, I hear it. It's not I like hear you, a steady drumbeat. It's not like you have to be a stat head to understand the the concept of why that particular stat is not not the greatest. Um, so I don't yeah. I don't know anything about Bumgarner specifically, but the fact that he doesn't value the pitcher win uh, doesn't really influence my opinion that much. I mean, 
the anti-win stats stance might be something that has filtered down from from stat people, but it's it's perfectly understandable without understanding any kind of advanced statistical perspective. So, uh, I don't even think Dylan's requires a response, but I want to read it because it's interesting. Uh, Dylan says, "Do you think a player can get ejected in the middle of a play?" The only feasible scenario I can come up with would be during a home run trot. Say a player goes yard, and as he rounds first base, he very explicitly yells at the umpire or says some unfavorable things about his mother. He gets tossed, but does he score first? Does the player that replaces him get to finish the trot around the bases? I don't have an answer for this. I also don't have a better hypothetical for this, but I like it. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to put it out there on the record. Do you have anything to say to Dylan? Uh, No, not really. I guess, I don't know. You could... You could theoretically get ejected as you're attempting to field a ball if you, I don't know, give everyone the finger and yell something nasty. Right? <laughs> you, can, you could just, you know, you could you could say something about the umpire's mother as you're circling under a fly ball. And, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, but, you know, not really. Um, it's, I guess you could imagine a situation where a player gets ejected while the ball is live, if not sort of, you know, if he's not necessarily expected to be fielding it. But, you know, if, if he if he slugs a base runner in the mouth, you might see the umpire. But I don't think they would. I think that in virtually any case other than the home run instance that he gives, it's mm-hmm. hard to imagine that he wouldn't get ejected after the play is, is, is over. Yeah. Uh, but the home run seems conceivable and i don't know the i don't know the answer well uh, all right players have gotten yeah. injured during home run trots and been replaced by a pinch runner who finished the trot right i think hasn't that happened pretty sure that's happened you're pretty sure yeah <laughs> i i'm so i that's more confident than than i am i i've never heard of that i've i mm. maybe it has I've, i mean we could ask larry larry would know yeah uh, okay. Is there another I, one? I will. I'll Google it if you'll allow yeah. me. Well, the, the last question is one for you. Mm. Um, so you can Google if you want. But um, Bill uh, asks about uh, comparing Trout with historic greats, and uh, his question is about defense. My understanding is that defensive metrics go back only so far, 10 years or so, and that base running metrics require play-by-play data that goes back farther, but not way, way back. If those assumptions are correct, if even one is correct, how do we compare Trout with, say, Lou Gehrig or Hannes Wagner or even the young Willie Mays, given that a non-trivial component of Trout's overall value comes from defense and base running? Hmm. Uh, and you I, yeah, have I, something to say? I can say something about that. I just I just Googled uh, the home run Trout thing, found a, a thing about what happens if a home run is hit, but the batter gets injured and is unable to run out the bases. Um a substitute runner is allowed to finish the run. There's rule 510C1, which says if an accident to a runner is such as to prevent him from proceeding to a base to which he is entitled, as on a home run hit out of the playing field or an award of one or more bases, a substitute runner shall be permitted to complete the play. And there's a little story here that involves our, our pal Gabe Kapler. Um, this rule covers both the batter and base runners. A situation similar to this occurred in a game between the Red Sox and Blue Jays in 2005. Gabe Kapler of the Red Sox was on first base when Tony Graffanino hit a home run. Kapler went down with a ruptured Achilles tendon between second and third base. 
Graffinino waited on second base while Kapler was loaded on a cart and taken off the field. Alejandro Machado entered the game as a pinch runner and finished the trot to home plate in Kapler's absence. So that's not quite the same since he was a player who was on base during the home run, not, it is, not the it batter. Is the same. It's the same it rule. The same. Yeah, it's the, the same, same rule. Yeah. Okay. So that's that. Uh, all right. So as for the trout thing, uh, I feel like we, I feel like we're underplaying the, the, the fact that it's Gabe Kapler. It, like, it is quite a coincidence. It's one of the three guests we've had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How about that? That's uh, kind of, that's a nice, that's, that's awesome. We should have him on again to talk about that particular play. It has practically happened to you <laughs> how, and, and you didn't even remember. <laughs> Um, so as for Trout, there are defensive stats that go back far more than 10 years, uh, and the same for base running metrics. They're not the same stats, or they're not using the same data source, um, but they, they are defensive stats, and they are used in, in warp and the various wars. Um, so, so Baseball Prospectus using, uses fielding runs above average, which goes back to 1950, so that's essentially the same system for 1950 as it is for 2013. So that's the same level of, of reliability today. If you go way back, uh, like Baseball Reference uses defensive runs saved from BIS from 2003 on. Before that, they use uh, total zone. And I think Fangraphs does the same when, when UZR, before UZR started, also uses total zone. And total zone kind of differs based on what year you're looking at because, you know, whether RetroSheet includes the hit location or whether it's just sort of an estimated thing based on where the batter hits the ball and all these things. So so the data sources change, the stats sort of change, and I think what really changes, and I was talking to Colin Wires about this before we started recording, is just the, the spread of defensive performance according to those stats the the spread would be smaller uh for for earlier years than it is now and he wasn't willing to say that one would be more or less precise uh it's you know it's there's no objective measure of defense that we can really compare them to so that's tough to say but there would be less separation between between the good and bad guys for the earlier years than there would be for now and and base running, if you go back very far, uh, is I think it just takes into account stolen bases and caught stealing, and maybe even just stolen bases because there was a time before caught stealing when that wasn't even tracked. So, so it wouldn't account for base running skill, uh, you know, other than that, just advancing on on hits or balls in play or anything. So, what that means with how we can compare Trout with those guys. Uh, I mean, if you're if you're looking at, at a career and comparing, you know, Willie Mays or or Hannes Wagner, Gehrig to to Trout's career when Trout has played longer, uh, I, I, it doesn't seem that much less reliable to me. But just looking at at a single season, I guess I would trust it less. Like if you were comparing Mike Trout's, you know, age twenty or age twenty one season to to some you know, pre-play-by-play players age 21 season, I, I guess I would be slightly less confident in the the earlier players' war rating. Um, so I guess that's that's all I have to say about that. 
Yeah, you'd be. I mean, you'd be less. But presuming that it's a good defender, and to to reach ten or eleven WAR level, you usually have to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems as though the older metrics probably decrease their chances of reaching the highest. Yes, peak, you know? true. Yes. So, so ar- arguably, if you had, uh, you know, if if Trout is, if you took the ten highest WARs, you know, at age twenty, um, and you know, seven of them were pre nineteen fifty. Then probably one or two of those uh, would sort of get a one win boost uh, with with sort of more modern metrics if we had them. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. All right. Well, uh, that was an email show. We'll be back tomorrow with a regular show. In the meantime, email us for next week. Podcast at baseballprospectus.com. And that's really all I've <laughs> got to say. Okay.